Good morning, church. Uh, Those of you who are joining us online, if you're watching live, today is June 19th, 11 in the morning, and today is Father's Day. Happy Father's Day. Those of you who are joining us in person, well, you're not here in the room. We're actually outside on the front lawn, and we're trying to make a day of it. And I hope you'll do the same and really join us in the celebration of fatherhood. That's such an important part of the life of family within the kingdom of God. This week, as we were preparing, I spent some time reflecting on memories that I have of my dad. Uh, My memory is not the strongest feature of my life, I acknowledge. So I was surprised at just how many things came flooding back. And I started writing them down on little cards, and, and I put them here in this jar. I remember the warmth of his voice. I look forward to it every time that I call, every time we drop in. I remember that warm voice as he read to us as kids at night, often from that 10-volume Collier's Junior collection of faith stories and myths and fairy tales. I don't know that you remember the one. Lots of us had it. I remember the way he would drill us with math flashcards. Any of you remember flashcards as a way of learning mathematics? I remember his British sterling cologne and the way I would borrow it for dates. I remember his beautiful sky blue 1976 Buick LeSabre and the way I would borrow it for dates. I remember his tailored gray three-piece suits with, with matching black hush puppy shoes and the way I would borrow them for dates. Actually, I don't remember going on any dates, but it's nice to imagine that I did wearing his clothes. I remember his foray into the entrepreneurial world and the the company that he founded to design and manufacture a teaching resource for students who were learning the wonders of human genetics, R&R Scientific, it was called. And I remember him going to trade shows and coming back with, with untold treasures, like Estes model rockets that we would design and build and, and launch in the fields of our family farm, sometimes horizontally, just to see what would happen. I remember the basement that would turn into a menagerie, the basement of our home here in Mississauga, as he brought home from the, from the biology lab where he was the head of science, just a, a whole zoological pantheon of typical lab animals. There were tarantulas and rodents. There was even a gaggle of geese one summer that, summer that were incubated and, and then hatched and then imprinted us on us as kids and followed us around, around waddling through the basement. I remember the trips that we took and, and the talks that we had. I look forward to talking with him about the books that we're reading, the lessons that he'd learned. He was a teacher, not just by trade, but he is a teacher in heart. I remember how every opportunity for education would be seized. That that scummy-looking pond there was teeming with life. Let me tell you how. Uh, let's talk about how you dissect a turkey. We don't just carve it. This is a lesson in anatomy. How can making candy become a lesson in the basic principles of chemistry? <laughs> My dad grew up in a family where he was always provided for, but often his own father, at least, tended to be undemonstrative. Um, My dad talks about how he rarely, if ever, heard the words, I love you. Now, my grandfather uh, was a man of great conviction and great integrity, Um, but as far as expressing emotion, well, he just 
tended not to be wired that way. And I think my dad at some point in his life must have made a conscious decision that he was going to do it differently. That in his his own home, the lives of his own kids, he was going to do it differently. I can't remember a time when I didn't hear the words, I love you, Richard, and, and we believe in you, Richard. A time when I was held and a time when I was taught. And he gave us this even though it was something that he probably hadn't received a lot of in his life. My mom is emotional, just intrinsic to, to the core. It's, it's part of her heart posture to those that she loves. It struck me, looking at the jar again this week, that this is, this is kind of representative of our lives, um, This little one, in a small way, representative of my dad's lives. Behind every card, there's a decision. And behind every decision, there was this resolve. That with God's help, I'm going to do my best to do it differently. With God's help, I'm going to try and do it better. And I thought, you know, when I hit 75, if, if I do, we celebrated my dad's 75th a few years back. I, I wonder what cards will be in my jar. I wonder what cards will be in yours. Uh, that's what we've been talking about in this series, this or that. The secret to making great decisions. Behind each card, there is a decision. And wisdom calls out to us, inviting us not just to make rash decisions or snap decisions, but to make good decisions, because it's the sum of the decisions that really shape our lives. The book of Proverbs, chapter 8, verse 1, does not wisdom call out, does not understanding raise her voice, the imagery used there, Striking, isn't it? Wisdom's not passive. It's not just there on the sidelines. Wisdom is trying to get the attention of the human race, calling out towards us, imploring us. God has arranged our lives such that both in times of pain and in times of joy and beauty and delight, that wisdom is meant to be a necessary guide, that we don't just slide or ease our way through life. Wisdom calls out goes on, Proverbs 8 and verse 10. It says, choose instruction instead of silver. Choose knowledge rather than gold, for wisdom is more precious than rubies, and nothing that you desire can compare to her. <laughs> feels like something that could have been written this morning in the headlines. Life just kind of feels that way. We want money. At least we think we want money because we want the life that money affords. But it turns out that wisdom is where real life really lies. Now, we've seen, if you've been tracking with us over the past six weeks, that, that God's primary will for our lives, that will that we hope will shape our decisions, that his primary will is not about the circumstances that we inhabit. It is about the person that we become. It's really about what goes into the jar. And so when it comes to this great important part about making decisions, we're not necessarily asking God for detailed moment-by-moment instructions so that we can outsource the responsibility of making decisions on somebody else. We don't ask to be excused from making decisions, but we're asking for wisdom to make them well. 
We want to make our decisions with God, not absent of God. Decision-making really is kind of a learned art. We get better at it with practice. Hopefully we get better at it through the years, though time alone is not necessarily an indicator of wisdom. We actually have to embrace it. We have to have the desire to, to practice it diligently through our lives, not just making decisions, but making wise decisions, reasoned decisions, careful decisions, inviting God into the decisions that we make. This coming week is always kind of a tricky week on my calendar. It's, it's the end of this week that Karina and I celebrate our anniversary. This also happens to be one of the very busy weeks in the life of the church. And so I always have to choose, will it be my wife or will it be my church? What is the wise choice? You can imagine my wife standing up and said, you better, you better make good decisions this week, Richard. One of the things that struck me about my father as I was reflecting this week is that in some of the most important arenas of his life, he made decisions about the kind of man that he would be and the kind of family that he wanted to have, about the kind of person, the kind of dad, the kind of life that he would give to his kids. And he made those decisions, I think, ahead of time. He didn't wait until he got home to decide whether or not he wanted to play with us. We always had that feeling that he couldn't wait to get home. He didn't wait until Sunday morning rolled around to to, to get out of bed and decide, well, do we feel like going to church today or not? He didn't wait until it was night and he'd had a long day and he was exhausted to decide whether or not he was going to spend time reading with us. He already made those decisions, and he made them ahead of time, before the moment of implementation arrived. And that's a, a principle that I'd really like to spend a bit of time reflecting on with you today. When it comes to the most important areas of our lives, what matters immensely are the decisions that you and I make ahead of time. It's kind of like pre-deciding. So we're going to talk about pre-decision in two or three significant areas of our lives. You remember at the beginning of the series, we looked at biblical wisdom. How do we make great decisions? Ask God for wisdom. Ask that God places you in the right frame of mind to make good decisions. Well, this week, I'd love to spend some time looking at this idea that when it comes to the most important arenas of your life, that you cannot wait until the moment of temptation, or of crisis, or of emergency, or of implementation to figure out what your values are, or where your boundaries lie, or what you will do or what you will not do, to navigate maybe what your commitments are going to be. You need to decide in advance. You pre-decide. Jesus talked about this long ago. Luke 14, verse 28, he says, Suppose one of you wants to build a tower. Or maybe we'd say a shed, or a house, or maybe a life. Suppose one of you wants to build a tower, Luke 14, 28. 
will you not first sit down? In other words, will you not spend some time thinking ahead of time, counting the cost, making sure that you're prepared to pay the price, that you have the resources necessary? What I'd love to think with you about today is this. What is it that you and I need to pre-decide in our lives about the cards that are going to go into our jar? In different areas of your life, what do you decide ahead of time about what gets written on these cards? For example, a whole bunch of cards in my dad's jar have to do with the decisions that he made about his time. Time is just this incredibly important area where we have so much more scope for decision than most of us really live with. As you think about what goes into your jar... The most precious commodity you have to give is probably not your money. It's your time. And our culture again and again and again gets this wrong. A young father asked his older mentor, he said, what is it that you did in order to be a good father? And the old man's response was really telling. He said, it's actually the things that I didn't do. I decided not to make vocational commitments and financial commitments that would take away my energy or my time from the commitment that I made to my family, the commitment to be a good dad. Let me give you a biblical example of this. It's from the book of Nehemiah. Some of you may know Nehemiah was a leader among God's people at the time when they were finally brought home after exile. So they've arrived back at Jerusalem, but Jerusalem is in ruins. It's a disaster. It's still living under the weight of foreign oppression. But, but, but Nehemiah wants to rebuild it. And so the first thing they decide they're going to rebuild is the walls so there could be protection for the city. And in the third chapter of Nehemiah, there is just this long list, dozens and dozens and dozens of names, all of men who are working shoulder to shoulder, rebuilding the wall until you get to this verse. This is Nehemiah chapter 3, verse 12. It says there that Shalem, the son of Halohesh, the ruler of half a district of Jerusalem repaired this next section with the help of his daughters. And I know we're kind of tend, we kind of tend to blip over chapters like this, except that every other name in this chapter of Nehemiah about the rebuilding the wall is about a bunch of guys doing it. But there's this guy, Shalem. He's a ruler over Jerusalem. He could have hired the workout, could have outsourced it. We're told about lots of other people in Jerusalem that did that. In fact, in verse 5, it says they're nobles. They wouldn't put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. But this one guy, Shalem, humbles himself. And not just that. He brings his daughters with him to do it. He's He's like the inventor of... Take your daughter to work day. You thought it was a secular holiday, but there it is. Started in the Bible. He tells his daughters, look, here's how you hammer a nail. He says that you always measure twice and then you cut. Girls, don't let anybody ever tell you that you can't do something because you're a girl. Just think about what that day must have been like for those girls and their dad. There's all these guys out there. And then there's Shalom and he's out there with his daughters. And I'll bet you that memory went into the jar. And I'll bet you when Shalem turned 80 years old that, that the daughters gathered around him and said, Hey, Dad, you remember that day 
when you took us with you and we went out together and we rebuilt the wall. And I bet there was a time when he was long gone, when those daughters grew up to be old ladies, when they would bring their granddaughters to that section of the wall, to that one spot, and say, I want you to show, I want to show you this place in the walls of Jerusalem. See right there? I did that. My dad showed me how. We did that together. Anyway, such a cool little verse in Nehemiah. I really like the way the Apostle Paul puts it. This is Ephesians in chapter 5, verse 16. It says, redeem the time. Redeem the time because the days are evil. Don't be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is. In a sense, every moment, you're putting something in the jar. The reason that Paul says that the days are evil is because they tempt us to live as if there is no God. We just throw our lives away. Dallas Willard, Dallas Willard made this amazing statement years ago. He said, for your time is already in the pawn shop of lost souls. What a great expression. Your time is already in the pawn shop of lost souls. That's every moment lived apart from God. It's a funny thing in our culture. You know, people who wouldn't waste a penny of their money will waste years of their time. Not at work, maybe, but but waste it by not doing the things that even they know matter the most. Folks, you can always make money. I, I know maybe you don't believe that, but you can make more money. You cannot make more time. So maybe you want to think about to whom or to what your time is going. The memories that you're making, the people that you're loving, where it is that you're serving, the difference that you're making, what you're learning, conversations that you're having, all of that. And ask, are there any predecisions that I need to make? And put them in the jar. Are there any cards that you want to make sure that go in there? Make sure they don't get jammed in there all at once, all at the very end. Redeem the time, because the days are evil. Don't be foolish. Understand what the Lord's will is. Maybe you just want to pause now and and whisper a little prayer. It says, God, give me the wisdom to make good decisions about my time. Another area of the cards involves values and integrity, predecisions in these areas. You want to make these decisions ahead of time. How are you going to handle things like financial integrity, spending, and generosity? Decide before the money comes in. Often people think, I can't afford it now. I can't afford to be generous. Someday when I have more money, I will. I can't tithe right now, but I aspire to do it someday. And so they just drift. But the days are evil. And they just continue drifting. And we get into more lavish and expensive lifestyles in the pursuit of more affluence, more stuff, more acquisition, more security. And generosity is just a sentiment, but it never becomes a reality. You need to predecide. When it comes to, to sexuality, we used to say this again and again and again in youth ministry. You, you don't wait until you're in the backseat of a car to decide, here are my values. 
What are the decisions that you want to make around sexuality, around your appetites, around your desires, around your habits? You need to make those before the moment of temptation or crisis comes. Because if you wait until the basement is dark, the lights are off, you waited too long. And that gets me to, I think, one of the most important dynamics of decision-making around spiritual growth. And I, I want to say a few words about what decision-making can do and about what it can't do, about the role that decision-making takes in forming our souls, in, in spiritual transformation. And this is, I think this is really important, and sometimes I think this gets badly misunderstood. I mentioned at the beginning of the series that according to a study out of Columbia, we make about 70 conscious decisions every day. What am I going to have for lunch? Will I answer that email right now or will I get to it later? The average decision takes only 10 or 20 seconds. What that means is that exponentially the largest part of our lives is not driven by conscious decisions, but by the ones that we make on autopilot. Autopilot by, by the decisions that, that happen without our conscious awareness of them. These are decisions that are shaped by habit. Most of our lives, you know this, most of our lives are governed by habits. The majority of what you do, brush your teeth, make your bed, drive to work, have a conversation. You're not consciously choosing, I'm going to drive this route, I'm going to walk this way. We operate by habit. And and let's just say that's a really good thing. Because you would go on overload if you had to make a conscious decision about every moment of every day. Habits are those regular patterns of thinking and feeling and acting and talking that just get embedded in our bodies. They get wired into our brains. They're right there in the neurons. We operate by habit. And that's a good thing. I think God made us that way. It's a good thing. But it's also a bad thing. It's a bad thing for for two reasons, at least. The first is that we know that sin has gotten into some of our habits. And that's a horrible tragedy. Paul talks about this. He talks about sin being right there in our members. It means in our bodies. It's, It's sort of just, it's ingrained into us. And the second thing, terribly important when it comes to spiritual growth, is that you often cannot overpower those habits just by human willpower, by just deciding. Turns out deciding is good for some big issues like where will I go to college? Will I take this, will I take this job? Should I get married? Where will we live? But willpower, decision making, is really weak when it comes to overriding the habits of thinking or feeling or behaving that are just embedded into us. Turns out you can't override most of that by willpower. This is, I think, the place where, where most self-help literature fails. Because it says things like, you can choose your attitude through the day. Actually, no, you, you probably can't. Because habits don't work that way. We, we know this. Anybody have any experience about that? You wake up in the morning and say, I'm going to decide now how I'm going to feel throughout the day. Here's the kind of attitude that I'm going to have. How does that work for you? I mean, let's be really simple about it. Anybody ever make an advanced decision about what you're going to eat today? And then you get to the key moment 
where you're going to follow through on that decision and you don't. I mean, I saw this cartoon this week, a character in a restaurant talking to a waiter. She says, I'm going to order a skinless grilled chicken breast and a side salad, but I want you to bring me a lasagna with garlic bread by mistake. We have that saying, which uh, it's not a Bible saying, it just turns out to be true, that the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Even wise people don't try and override their habits by willpower alone. What, what they seek instead is to have God transform their habits by alignment with a different set of values. People who are wise about their spiritual lives have always understood this. Thomas Aquinas, who wrote this really, really dense book of theology and spiritual truth, devoted like 70 pages in what he called the Summa Theologica, the summary of theology. He devoted 70 pages to the cultivation of holy habits. Because he realized, even back then, 4th century, that mostly spiritual growth involves the alignment of our habits with God. It's shaping and forming new habits in our lives. It's not just deciding. Uh, Let me give you a, a really deep example. An example that most of you are aware of, even if you haven't experienced it firsthand. If somebody is an alcoholic, how helpful is it really to say to them, can't you just decide not to drink? I mean, can't you just stop? Uh, that's the way of death, it turns out, for alcoholics. Because they can't just decide. Now, there is a role that decision has to play in the pursuit of sobriety. But it's not in overcoming uh, addiction just just by a decision. It's another kind of choice. It's the choice that says, I'm going to put myself into a way of life through which I know I can receive the power to do that which by will alone I cannot do. And it's in the sobriety of a 12-step community. And a lot of you know about the 12 steps that that happens. It says, beginning with this choice, I choose to join a 12-step community. In the Bible, that's called fellowship. And then I acknowledge that my life has become unmanageable. That's called humility in the Bible. And I surrender my will to God. That's called conversion, if you'd like, in the Bible. And I will do this ruthless moral inventory. The Bible says, search me, O God, and know me. Know my heart. I will confess my wrongdoings to God and to myself and to others. That's called confession in the language of the Bible. I will go to those that I have wronged and I will try and make it right. That's called repentance in the Bible. I will seek to help others. That's the 12th step. That's called servanthood in the Bible. But the whole dynamic, the whole power of the 12 steps is simply a reflection of discipleship, which is about forming habits, not just deciding in one fell swoop that I'm going to stop. If you could have stopped, you would have stopped long ago. No, this is forming the habits that allow you to stop by bringing the transforming power of God into the life of spiritually crippled human beings. I receive from God the power to do what human willpower alone cannot do. 
Hey, and by the way, if you're, if you're wondering, where did those 12 steps come from? They actually came from, they were called the Oxford Group in the 19th century, which was an attempt in the 19th century to recapture the power of those classic practices like fellowship and self-examination and confession and conversion and repentance, to recapture all those practices that were engaged in by the disciples of Jesus. They came directly from followers of Jesus who were trying to apply the Holy Spirit in transforming their habits and their hearts. No Jesus, no 12 steps. Being a follower of Jesus, yes, it involves a decision. But the decision isn't, I'm going to decide to go around trying my best to be more patient and more joyful and more grateful. So many people get killed spiritually trying to live that way. No, it's... I'm going to decide that I will train for this. I will enter a way of life with Jesus through fellowship, through reflection on Scripture, through confession and worship and and repentance and servanthood and generosity, through shaping the habits of my life into patterns of thinking that become automatic by nature. They will shape my speech. They will shape my choices. They will shape what gets written on the cards in the jar. I'm going to align my life habitually with the will of God. It brings us to one last area. What will my life with God be like? That's a big question. Uh, what will my life with God be like? What have, you, what have you decided about that? Let me tell you about one more dad in the Bible. This is from Acts chapter 21. Luke, who's the writer of Acts, Luke says, leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea, and we stayed there at the house of Philip. This is Acts 21, verses 8 and 9. We stayed in the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and he had four unmarried daughters who all prophesied. That's the only thing we know about the fatherhood of Philip. He had four kids, all girls, all unmarried, and they all had the gift of prophecy. Must have been a fascinating family. But that's not all that we know about Philip. We met Philip first 20 years earlier in the book of Acts. He's one of the seven people raised up and identified by the apostles to be, I guess, what we might call a deacon. It says he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And full of wisdom. He made really good decisions. It's very interesting. You know, later on, it says when Philip went to preach in Samaria, full stop, because nobody was going to Samaria. Nobody liked Samaritans, but, but Philip did. And he says when he went to preach in Samaria, they were filled with joy because he brought Jesus to them. A little later on, we read about Philip seeing a eunuch from Ethiopia. This guy would also have been outside of the boundaries for most people. He was a pagan. He was an Ethiopian. He was a whole other race. He was from Africa. He was a eunuch. That that means that he would have been regarded, at least in Israelite society, as deformed. Somebody who wouldn't be welcomed into the assembly of God's people. But Philip goes right to him. Seeks him out. Philip is, is just this. He's this people including, people embracing Boundary cost crossing Jesus magnet. And he leads Philip to Christ right there and baptizes him same day. 
It, by the way, I, I hope you'll join us next Sunday. We're celebrating baptism here as part of our 11 o'clock service, and we'll also be streaming that online. But let's come back to Philip the father. Uh, God gives him four children, all daughters, all daughters in a patriarchal society where most people, sadly, wanted only sons. But they all became followers of Jesus. They all have the gift of prophecy, a fascinating spiritual gift. The gift of prophecy involves speaking truth, often hard truth. Some people say it's the same as the, the gift of preaching, but it's a little bit more than that. It's confronting people, usually at a conscience level, with truth that, for the most part, we don't want to hear. Prophets make people uncomfortable. But we need prophets. <laughs> they don't get invited to a lot of parties, but Philip had four of them. And they're all girls. None of them married. Can you imagine what Philip's life must have been like at home? Dad, are you really going to wear that? Dad, did you really say that? Dad, are you doing that? Really? But dad loves Jesus so much, Philip as a dad. And he loves it when all kinds of people get included who were once excluded, get to be part of the kingdom. And he just cheers them on. I think it's no accident that this man, Philip, becomes the father of four daughters who all have the gift of prophecy. And they saw in their dad such a profound love for Jesus, such a, such a heartwarming inclusion of people that they actually went on to become pillar leaders in the early church. And we read about them a lot in the, the extra-biblical literature. Lots of literature about the life of the church outside of the Bible. And there they are, living into old age, pillars in the life of the church. Why? Well, it started with their dad. Have you predecided about your commitment to worshiping God, and praying for people, doing on a regular basis those things by habit that your children will see? Have you made a commitment, if you're a parent, to the spiritual life of your children? And have you made the commitment to live in such a way that they will never doubt what it means to you? If you're a dad, I mean, if you're a parent, you make a decision for yourself that shapes your children. And when the family of God gathers together for worship, you're not going to be casual about this. You're not going to get sloppy around it. You're going to be present. You're going to make a commitment and make sure that your kids see that in you. It's the big question, isn't it? What's going into your jar? Because you know what? You only get one of these. We all get one. And we have to decide. And when you get to the end of your life, and you will, what is it that you want to be written here? It goes by so quickly, doesn't it? There's this great verse in Psalm 90. It says, the days of our lives are 70 years or perhaps 80 if we're strong. And even then, the span of our lives can be toil and trouble. And then they're soon gone and we fly away. We're like grass. In the morning it flourishes, in the evening it fades and withers. That's hmm. wisdom, isn't it? And we're left with this jar. And the choices that we make, and the person that we become. 
And we carry that with us into all eternity. So choose wisely. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this moment. And together we reflect on what a mystery it is that you've given us this life. Wisdom calls us to remember. To remember that it goes by so quickly, like grass flourishes in the morning, withers in the evening. God, help us to choose wisely right now. And if there's any choice that you feel God calling to you in these moments, any area of your life where you know you've been going down the wrong road and God is saying right now, I want you to make another decision. I want you to choose a better way. Maybe you can just seal that choice right now with a prayer. God, starting today, I choose to do it differently. And then commit yourself to the habits that will allow you to follow through with the choice. Together, God, we say on this day, for all of us, whether we've had great experiences with our fathers and we're filled with gratitude, or whether for some there is pain there and suffering and we're in need of healing, all of us, together we thank you that you are the kind of father that Jesus taught about. And to you we can come. And to you we ask, would you fill us with wisdom? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.